Matthew 25, 1-13 Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for you, and for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, indeed. Welcome. Uh, If you're new, my name is Mark. Happy Father's Day uh, to you who made it out to church uh, this fine summer day. A little little Father's Day story, uh, unplanned, but something happened this morning around our breakfast table that I thought was worth sharing to put us in the Father's Day spirit. Uh, My family and I had a breakfast of eggs and sausage and toast this morning, and after all of that, the kids proceeded to give me their various gifts. And last Christmas, actually, my son Micah had given me a package of golf balls, which I very much appreciated and have proceeded to lose all of them. Uh, No, I have a few left. I have a few left. But this Father's Day, my son Bodie gave me a package of golf balls, uh, to which my daughter Avery protested, you know, Micah, daddy already gave you a package of golf balls, and Micah promptly announced to the table, no, you see, now he can play with both of his balls. That's word for word, I'm just reporting the news, you make of it what you will, (laughs) onward and upward. Um, We're spending our summer months here in worship. Yes, this is worship. Listening to the parables of Jesus. Uh, We've thus far listened to the parable of the lamp on its stand. Uh, We've likewise last week listened to the parable of the talents. Today we're listening to the parable of the ten bridesmaids, the ten virgins that we just read a moment ago. As we listen to these parables in succession... I hope, I believe, I trust that you will begin to identify certain themes or patterns as they emerge in the parables. See, because the parables are not isolated teachings about varied particular topics. The parables are not illustrations from Jesus about how we're to go about navigating this world in the various aspects of our lives. No, in fact, the parables all work together as a cohesive whole, giving us varied glimpses into one coherent kingdom. The parables lift the veil, as it were, give us a peek under the veil into the kingdom of God, into how it is that the values of the kingdom of God play out. They show us that. They demonstrate that to us. And so they're not so much telling us how it is that we might go about 
living according to these values. They're more simply displaying in glimpses to us how it is that this kingdom operates. Whether we participate in it or not, it is there. They are offering us a glimpse into that world. So, for example, all of the parables, including the one that we're looking at today, a pattern and a theme that you will perhaps notice is that of inclusion and exclusion. Really, almost all of the parables are dealing with those themes or that theme of inclusion and exclusion. And the way that the values of the kingdom bring about inclusion and exclusion are very different than the way that inclusion and exclusion play out in our world, in our earthly kingdoms. In the world that you and I live in, exclusion is the baseline principle. Case in point, we are at odds with one another in our world. We exclude one another automatically. It takes a disruption for inclusion to happen in our world. The wall of exclusion has to be pierced or broken through in some way. So if you think about this in your daily experiences, when a stranger, say, approaches you on the street, you are automatically in a state of exclusion. That's not right or wrong, moral or immoral, it just is. When a stranger approaches you on the street, your guard goes up. And that stranger then has to make the case for why you would let your guard down, for why you would allow them into your life, why you would include them in the story of your life. Or likewise, if you're familiar at all with our wonderful Chicago Transit Authority, if you ride on the bus or the L, you know that there is a blanket of exclusion that defines the interpersonal relationships between the people sitting there on their way to work or wherever. There is no inclusive conversation that happens. It's an extraordinary event when something breaks through or someone breaks through that wall of separation, that wall of exclusion, and begins to operate in a more inclusive way. There's a baseline of exclusion that governs our world, that dictates how it is that we interact with one another. And inclusion is disruptive to that. Inclusion always follows that. Okay, the kingdom of God is exactly the opposite. In the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God, the baseline is inclusion. People are always included. Exclusion comes later. Exclusion is the disruption. Exclusion is at odds with what is normative in the kingdom of God. And we've seen that as we've looked at the parables. I think you saw it clearly last week in the parable of the talents, wherein the parable begins with this radical inclusion where the master offers all of his money to all of his servants. He extends the privilege to manage his business dealings to all of his servants. He doesn't isolate out those who are unfaithful at the first. No, that comes later. He assumes that they are all wanting to participate. He includes them all 
at the beginning of the story, and the exclusion only comes at the end. It disrupts what is the baseline norm in the kingdom of God. Likewise, in the parable next week that we will look at, perhaps this will come through most clearly of any of the parables in the parable we will look at a week from today, that is the parable of the sheep and the goats, which begins with a radical sort of inclusion and ends with a rather jarring exclusion. Okay, this is true for our parable today as well. Clearly, in the parable of the ten bridesmaids, the parable begins like this in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, ten bridesmaids in our vernacular, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Okay, you see right at the jump here this theme of inclusion being in operation. We have here five wise bridesmaids and five foolish bridesmaids, but what do they have in common? They're all invited to the wedding. They are all going to the same wedding. They are all eager to go to this wedding. They are all going with expectation that this will be the sort of wedding that they will enjoy and that the bridegroom, the groom of this wedding will be the sort of bridegroom worth meeting. They're excited to meet him. They're excited to enter into the celebration with him over his impending marriage. The parable opens then with this radical inclusion. Exclusion won't come until later. Okay, now what is Jesus up to here? Well, this parable of the ten bridesmaids is among the most challenging and confusing of all the parables in the New Testament. There are dozens of varied interpretations, varied interpretations from scholars even within identical traditions, streams of thought. There's disagreement as to how exactly to go about understanding this parable. Some of the interpretations amount to sort of dazzlingly ornamental allegory, wherein every aspect of this parable allegorizes to some other reality, right? So you have these ideas that the lamps in the parable are human souls, and the oil is the Holy Spirit, and the five foolish virgins are the Gentiles, and the five wise virgins are Israel, the nation of Israel. These kind of intricate allegories seek to find meaning in the parable, to draw out the meaning of the parable by zooming in as tightly as possible to it. By getting into the very weeds of it, the very specific details of it. Okay, but that represents a fundamental misunderstanding of what parables are. Because parables are not detailed accounts of what the kingdom of God is. Parables do not remove the veil entirely and show us intimately in particular detail how it is the kingdom of God works. Parables are glimpses. Parables are a peak under the veil. And just like the sort of shadowy peak that you might get from an outdated security camera, 
zooming in too closely on that footage winds up just distorting the picture. When we zoom in too closely on the parables, we're missing their point. In fact, most of the parables would have us zoom out. And this parable in particular has a clue right in its opening line that indicates that we need to zoom out, indicates that we need to not look at the parable in isolation, but rather see the surrounding context and text around it. Jesus begins this parable of the ten bridesmaids by using the word then. He says, then the kingdom of God will be like. Of course, indicative to his previous teaching. He is saying, because of what I've just been saying, this parable now then applies. So it's up to us to zoom out from the parable and go back and look what it was in Matthew chapter 24 that Jesus was saying there. And when we do that, we see that in Matthew 24, the immediately preceding text, Jesus is talking about the end of the age. He's talking about when heaven and earth will pass away, when a new creation will be. And he is saying in that passage that this event, this transition from the present reality as we know it, from the present heavens and the present earth into the final heavens, the new creation and the new earth, that this moment will happen suddenly, that it will sneak up on us, that it will come without warning, that it will suddenly simply be happening all around us. We may not have even noticed when it started, but we'll have to sort of wake up to it. So then when Jesus turns and tells this parable, he is telling a parable about waiting for that day. Telling a parable about waiting for that transition, waiting for that moment when the new heavens and the new earth break in to our decaying reality. And he tells this story of these ten bridesmaids who are invited to a celebration. Presumably that new day, that transfer from old to new. Five of them go foolishly expecting that that celebration will commence immediately. They go expecting that there will be no delay. They take no extra oil along with them. They rush off to the party believing that the party is now. Conversely, the other five, the five so-called wise bridesmaids, wise virgins, they head off to this celebration expecting that there will be a delay. They head off to this celebration actually making preparation for a delay. They bring along with them extra flasks of oil. They're in it for the long haul, and they know it may well be a long haul. And as Jesus continues to tell the parable, that, of course, is exactly what happens. The bridegroom is delayed. And he's delayed so long, in fact, that these ten bridesmaids, all ten of them, wise and foolish alike, wind up growing drowsy and falling asleep. And then, finally, when midnight has arrived, when the bridegroom shows up, 
and the celebration is ready to begin, only those who were wise, only those who had prepared for the long haul, are ready to begin participating. The foolish bridesmaids by this point are long since out of oil. They were not expecting a long wait. They were expecting the party to have already happened by now. And they have not prepared for this kind of a delay. So, what do they do? They go to the wise bridesmaids and they ask if they can borrow some of the oil from their wiser counterparts. Well, the wise bridesmaids aren't particularly charitable people, turns out. They actually come off pretty bad in this story, pretty selfish. They reject this request on a part of the foolish bridesmaids for some of their oil. And not only do they reject them, they also send them out on a wild goose chase to buy oil at midnight. Now, all of my study of ancient Near Eastern history indicates that there were not many 24-hour oil shops in this day. And so, of course, when the foolish maidens, the foolish bridesmaids go out to try and buy oil, they find none. But while they are off on this fool's errand, the wedding festivities begin to take place, and indeed the opening festivities come to an end. And everyone goes inside to the wedding feast, such that when the foolish bridesmaids return, they find that they are left on the outside. And they come to the door, and they ask the keeper of the door, who happens to be the bridegroom himself, if they too might now be let inside. And we read at the end of this parable, he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And then the closing line of the parable, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Can I ask how many of you, when you first entered into the life of faith, you came into that life of faith with the excitement and zeal of one going to a party? For many of us, maybe even all of us, that tends to characterize our first response of or to the invitation from God to come to him. We're full of zeal, full of excitement, full of expectation. We go to the party with an eagerness. We arrive early, oftentimes both figuratively and Literally, we find ourselves rising early in the morning to engage in our zealous communion with the Lord. We have an expectancy that this party will be worthwhile, that the celebration will be rocking, that the bridegroom is worth knowing and meeting. There's an expectation that the party is going to commence now. When we come into faith, we have an expectancy that all of the tears, both our own tears and the tears of the world, will now begin to be wiped away, that we will begin to live in a new creation, that it will begin to manifest demonstrably in front of us. We have an expectation that it will have an impact on all aspects of our life. We're eager to see what it looks like to live in this party spirit with the Lord and to participate with him in ushering in 
this new kingdom. But for how many of you, upon arriving at the place of celebration, you begin over the course of some time to see through the hype? The zeal and expectation of our first response to the invitation of the Lord begins to wane when the sort of promise that our lives would be dramatically changed or that the world would be dramatically changed in some way appears to be failing us. We start to notice, for example, that our marriages remain difficult. They don't operate seamlessly as we were told that they might should we simply begin to follow the teaching and values of this new kingdom. We find that our children don't behave even though we are going about raising them according to the principles of this new kingdom. We find that our worship of God oftentimes feels cold or distant, no matter how early in the morning we may rise, no matter how faithful our devotion may be, no matter how earnest our church participation is. Our daily work oftentimes feels dull and mundane, and it seems as though our life lacks any purpose or any meaning, the kind of purpose and meaning that we were promised in our youthful zeal, the sort of thing that first made us get up and rush to the party of this new kingdom. All of that hype and zeal begins to fade. All the promises of joy and celebration seem to be still pretty far off. And we start to wonder, is this dead scene this dead scene of the life of faith really worth holding on to? Is this dead scene really worth spending my days on? Is it really worth sticking it out, holding on? See, the life of faith, it's a life of waiting. And all the insistence of youthful zeal that we can usher in the kingdom of God right now, all of that overlooks one very clear and undeniable reality. The king is late. The bridegroom is delayed. He's running late for his own celebration. There has been this wild, reckless proclamation of a new heavens and a new earth, of a new kingdom breaking in to dry all the tears of this broken place. And we show up ready for the king to reign, ready for this new order to take hold, 
ready for our own arts to be transformed, for our world to be transformed, for people to stop mistreating one another, for the values of inclusion and all the other glorious pictures of the kingdom to be fully realized before us, and we start to wonder, where's the king? What's taking so long? He's late. We're left waiting. And many of us get a little drowsy. Many of us start to take naps. We're a church, you may not all know this, but we're a church by and large made up of people who are a bit burned out on church. Someone asked me recently, what is it that characterizes our church most? And that was my answer. I think most of the people in our church aren't all that excited about church. <laughs> Pastors included. <laughs> See, a lot of us can tell stories of zealous faith from years gone by, but that all now seems like a distant memory anymore. We're feeling a bit sleepy. And some of us are not even all that sure anymore that the king is on his way. Can I tell you, this was the plan all along. This was exactly what the bridegroom had in mind all along because this bridegroom of ours, he's a bit of a strange bird. And he doesn't mind actually leaving his guests waiting. He doesn't mind actually forcing his guests into that humiliating place of realizing that you've arrived at the party way too early. There is nothing more humiliating than getting your wires crossed and showing up at a party a couple of hours too early when the host can't even attend to you and obviously resents your presence. This is why everyone is always fighting with all their worth to be fashionably late. But this bridegroom, this king, he doesn't mind having us be humiliated in that way. In fact, he prefers it. Because he wants nothing to do with the fashionably late crowd. These foolish bridesmaids who figured they could zip out for a late night oil run and then slip back into the party without having to suffer the humiliation. This isn't that sort of party. This is the sort of party that begins happening to you when you're at your worst. This is the sort of party that begins happening to you 
when you're at your drowsiest. It's the sort of party that insists on you being humiliated first. It's the sort of party that waits out all your zeal. And when your guard is down most, when you're slipping into slumber most, suddenly it is happening all around you. See, the kingdom of God is not the sort of kingdom that you and I can participate in ushering in. The party is not the sort of party that you and I can participate in making preparation for, except in our failures. It's our having fallen asleep that ushers in the kingdom. It's us at our worst, us at our drowsiest when the kingdom finally breaks in. It breaks in in our darkest moments, our sleepiest moments. It even breaks in for many, even most, in the darkest moment of all and meets them in their grave. Our bridegroom is delayed for the express purpose of waiting out our zeal. Of humiliating us into drowsiness. St. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. God is actually making us wait. He has made us to wait. He has made the whole creation to wait. And he has given us no demonstrable appetizers, at least not ones that we can see with the natural eye. We have glimpses of the coming kingdom. But those glimpses can only be seen through eyes of faith can only be heard with ears of faith. All the promises of this distant kingdom, they remain shadowy. Can't clearly hold on to them. And we are left here in this rather dead scene. Some of us even holding our own dead whether put there at the hands of crazed gunmen or one of the thousands of other ways that we are laid to rest while our bridegroom is delayed. And we have here only invisible hope to hold on to. Paul continues in Romans 8, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so here we are, people of faith, all these years later, however long it's been since you first responded to the call of faith. Here we are, and we're still waiting. All the hype 
of our youthful endeavors and zeal to change ourselves, change our circumstances, usher in the kingdom of God. It's all faded. And the only question for us is whether we are willing to wait some more. Whether we are in it for the long haul, whether we're going to hang in there with only invisible hope to hold on to. We might have guessed this about our groom. Might have guessed this about the king. That he'd be running so late to his own party. That's the sort of groom that he is. He's someone who gives great attention to whatever and whomever is before him. Schedules and timelines be damned. He can't be bothered with, what, with such things. He's too consumed telling good stories, too immersed in moments to be noticing the time. People have been complaining for millennia, in fact, about the untimeliness of this king. That he always seems to be delayed. That he always seems to be running late. That he's not a respecter of our schedules or our demands. It's almost like that to him, a day is a thousand years. He acts as though he has all the time in the world. And the question for us is will you wait? Will you wait for him? Will you keep hoping? I want you to take heart because there is no requirement that we wait well. No doubt we'll get sleepy. No doubt we'll take a nap for a decade here, a decade there. We might even get grouchy and selfish, be the worst kind of people, refuse to share our oil with anyone else. But will we wait just the same? Will we return day after day, week after week, holding on to the hope that we had at first, the true hope that we had at first, not that the celebration will begin now, but that it will begin one day? Will you keep living as though the kingdom is real? Keep imagining its splendor even in the absence of any demonstrable, visible sign to the natural eye? Will you keep hoping that this king will come to us and that the party will roll? For those of you who will, I'll wait with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the invitation to the party, for the inclusive call that goes out to our world. We confess that many of us are weary 
waiting for you. Many of us have grown sleepy. Some of us are wondering if you are en route. Having a hard time abiding this dead scene. And all the tears and sorrow that it includes. Help us, Father. Grant us faith that endures. Keep us to the end. May we never go out looking for more oil, but only keep looking for you. Amen.